0: Welcome to Spies of London. This special episode is a book review of A Game of Moles by Desmond Bristow and his son Bill Bristow. I was really excited to receive this book because I hadn't previously heard about it and it came to me through a friend. It was found in a house that was being cleared, appropriately enough. A Game of Moles, according to the back cover, is the first full-length personal account of MI6 written by an ex-agent. Desmond Bristow. A telling portrait of a divided life, Desmond spent most of the Second World War in Gibraltar and Algiers where he was a leading figure in deception work and I know that he worked on Double Cross as well with Tommy Harris and in particular his mentor and manager was Kim Philby for a long time. So he knew Burgess, he knew Philby, he knew Tommy Harris and the timing of this book is interesting. It came out in 1993, although this paperback came out in 1994, and that was the year when MI6 and MI5 were officially recognised. They moved into new headquarters buildings, in MI6's case a very prominent eye-catching building, and they tried to make themselves more accountable to Parliament and the public at large. So the timing of this book very interesting. Bristow also knew Peter Wright, the author of the infamous and banned book Spycatcher, which came out in 1987. I think it's too long a gap from 87 to 93 for me to make a connection that I wanted to make, which is that this book is perhaps a a reply or a response to Spycatcher, which has since been largely discredited. Although Bristow agrees with Peter Wright, that Roger Hollis, their boss, and indeed the head of MI5, was also a KGB mole in with the Cambridge Five. I don't believe this anymore. I think that Philby was the most senior of the moles, that he tipped off McLean and Burgess and that Philby was, was quite badly treated in many respects because he was forced to leave the secret service even though there was really no evidence against him and even though the service did not properly follow up the investigation in a normal way. They took years and years and years to pin him with anything and then when they finally pinned it on him they let him escape which might have been convenient for them, especially people like Guy Little. really satisfied nobody. Whereas Blunt was allowed to escape, but didn't have to leave the UK. Philby went into exile in Russia with Burgess and Maclean. So there's double standards, double crossing in every sense of the word, and this is really a very powerful story for anybody interested in espionage, because the Cambridge Five still, years after they all died, looms large in British Secret Service culture, and certainly in fiction as well. And of course, there are people who think there are more than five, many more than five, including Hollis, Little, and others. And I think that's why the mole, the traitor, is such a corrosive idea. Because once you've got a bad apple, you need to find the others. Is there one bad apple? Is there two, three, or five? And if you found five, why not 10? And people like Peter Wright and JJ Angleton cannot rest. They became so wrapped up in the search for the mole that every time they found a mole, they couldn't resist searching for the next one. And it, I think it ate them both up. I think Peter Wright became bitter and paranoid. Certainly, Bristow says that later in the day when they were about to catch Philby, Wright seemed tired and not bored, but just exhausted, worn out by the suspicion. And the same happened to the CIA with their guy, George Angleton, who discovered a lot of the British spies, ironically enough, while they were working in Washington, and he couldn't rest either. And both Wright and Engleton became sort of pariah figures who were viewed on with derision because they just couldn't stop, and hence Spycatcher, which was Peter Wright's revenge on the Secret Service in many ways, published from his retirement in Australia. So there's everything to play for with this book. It should have been an amazing book, but I've never liked autobiographies because there's too much of the I and the me, and especially looking back to the 40s and 50s, the dialogue in it is dated... The attitudes are dated and, in many respects, offensive. Views on homosexuality and race, particularly, are absolutely normal for the time. But when you're reading them in 2020, never mind 1993, they are wrong. Simple as that. So the autobiography doesn't gloss or varnish anything in a way that a true biography written by a professional writer would do. And because it's not written by a professional writer, it loses some of the fluency. So it's not a great book on its own, but it's a proper publisher, Warner Books, and it is very interesting for the people Bristow knew. I like it a lot because it shows you a different perspective from a person who was not directly involved, as far as we know, with the KGB at all. He was strongly anti-communist. He spent a lot of time in Spain before, during, and after the war. And Bristow comes across as uh, a normal guy, you know, just a normal guy doing abnormal, interesting, exciting things. And if you've been listening to Library Discoveries, my other podcast, you will recognize that sound in the background is me flicking through the book. The first passage that really caught my eye was the one about Tommy Harris. So Kim Philby was known to be a friend of Thomas Harris. Tommy and Hilda were Spanish art collectors and dealers, lived in Spain for many years, but settled around the corner from MI5 in Chesterfield Gardens, which is just off Curzon Street in Mayfair. number six, Chesterfield Gardens, is on my spy walk. So this passage I found very interesting. It details a weekend when Bristow and Kim Philby visited Tommy, which was in a very beautiful part of London and meant that the Harrises were rich. Hilda Harris greeted us, Kim made the introductions, and Hilda took me up to my bedroom on the third floor. The wardrobe was a 17th century cupboard with brass studded lattice work on its doors. Very Spanish and very rare in England. I washed and changed. Walking downstairs, I could not help noticing the virtual museum pieces of furniture and art decorating the landings. After the inevitable drink, Kim excused himself and drove off to see his mother. I think there's a supposition here that he didn't actually do that. Hilda, Tommy and I walked around the corner to a little hole-in-the-wall restaurant and started an early supper. Shortly before we were turned out of the restaurant, Kim arrived and ordered a drink. And they set up drinking and talking about the Spanish Civil War Kim explains that Tommy is working for MI5, which is literally, you can see it from his bedroom window. Chesterfield Gardens was a tall, luxurious townhouse, probably worth about 10 million pounds today. And now most of those townhouses are offices. It seems clear to me that Bristow really liked Kim Philby. He knew Kim's wife. He used to give Kim lifts home on his motorbike and to the pubs around St. Albans where they were working. They used to work at a stately home called Glenarmond in MI5 section V which I thought originally was to do with Spain, but in fact seems to collate intelligence from other places too and is heavily involved in the XX or double-cross system to feed misinformation back to the Germans using their cracked codes. Um, Later in his career in the 50s, Bristow meets Peter Wright and they start talking about Philby and the others and their suspicions. And it's quite clear that Bristow is suspicious of somebody because of the way McLean and Burgess were allowed to go and let slip. And later on, it's clear that Bristow suspects Philby. And after a few conversations with Wright, it turns out that Wright sends somebody to Cambridge to question Bristow's old tutor to see if he was a communist. At some stage, Bristow himself was under quite significant suspicion, because he knew Burgess, and was involved in writing a report against Burgess, which led to him being reprimanded, and which was resisted by Little. So people suspect Little and Hollis as well, of course. And then in September 1962, as Wright is tightening the noose for Philby, he gets Bristow to write a report. He basically says that Bristow is one of the very few, if not the only person he knows to be not a communist, who knows Philby really well. So his testimony is very important. And in September 1962, he writes a report in the form of a letter which is reproduced here, although from memory. Dear Peter, The first time I met Kim Philby was at my initial interview with Felix Cowgill in 1941. Kim, a gentle-looking man with smiling eyes and an air of confidence, was wearing an old sports jacket with leather elbows. He sat behind Felix making notes and only interrupted a few times to ask me to repeat myself. My first impression was of a man with quiet intellectual charm. My second meeting with Kim Philby took place when he drove me up to St. Albans. During this drive, I realised he was in charge of organising the Iberian section of Section V of MI6. I immediately liked him, and knew working with him was going to be fun and interesting. He had a spiritual tranquility about him. He was very unassuming and modest. And such was the interweaving of these two services, Even after all these years, I get confused between which bits and which people were MI5 and MI6. And some people, like Dick White, were in both. And John le Carre was in both, famously, as well. So it turns out that Section V is in MI6, not MI5, as I might have said earlier. This letter goes on for several pages, and I think if you're really interested in this letter, you should borrow the book, or buy the book, second-hand. But the next passage is significant. After the flight of Burgess and McLean, Kim was posted to Madrid by the Observer. During his stay, we saw a certain amount of each other, despite my being warned not to by the office. We did not talk about their defection, or about Kim being asked to leave the service. He always sidestepped the issue. And at this time, Philby was under pressure by friends like Tommy Harris to write a book about how he'd been fitted up by MI6. And of course, he never did that. He couldn't bring himself to go that far in his lies. He did hold the famous press conference where he convinced Fleet Street that he was innocent and indeed the British Prime Minister but he never wrote the book which would have exonerated him because he was guilty. On my return to London again I met up with Kim at Tommy and Hilda's party so they're still seeing each other socially even though Bristow has been warned not to. And it was during this period that I noticed a decline in Kim's outward appearance, especially after his acquittal by Macmillan in 1955. And Macmillan was Prime Minister then, and he spoke in Parliament in defence of Philby. To round off, Peter, I regard Kim Philby as a friend who has partially died as far as I'm concerned. The suspicion about his loyalties has created so much doubt in my mind about him as a friend, but more doubt about the abilities of my past employers, that I find it hard and somewhat painful to think about him in a clear positive fashion. Whether your present investigations prove he is a Soviet agent or not, the fact that he has shaken the very foundation of the secret service in the way he has is partly his doing and partly the doing of the services themselves. Yours sincerely, Desmond Bristow. I agree with this. There were so many moles roaming around the British Secret Service, and they they were so willfully ignorant of the possibilities. Even when people like Burgess had reports, negative reports, written about them and reported to the Foreign Office, nothing was really properly done. They were never properly investigated, and Guy Little has to be blamed for some of this. The negligence has to be with the organisation which supported them for so many years. We're talking decades here, not five minutes. And Bristow goes on to say... Now, with the privilege of hindsight, it is easy for me to see suspicious acts and searching words in conversations, but to say I was truly suspicious of Kim at the time would be a lie. Over the Christmas of 1962 and 63, Bristow and his wife received a card from Beirut. The picture on the front was of three Bedouin tribesmen heading east. The message read simply, Have a happy Christmas and a happy new year. May not see you for a while. Love, Kim. And Bristow is in no doubt that this is an admission that Kim was the third man. And Philby defected, I think, from Beirut. And there's a very interesting story behind that too. Bristow now goes on to talk about Spycatcher. And Wright talks about his suspicion that Roger Hollis was a Russian mole. And Bristow convinced Wright that Little was probably a mole, or at least somehow supporting the moles. Hollis always denied his involvement, as did Little. Bristow goes on to say Cyril Mills has accused Peter Wright of being a traitor and a liar well there's no doubt that Wright embellished and and had a grudge and a a axe to grind here but also Bristow makes the point that perhaps the politicians were so ashamed of the way in which the government has ignored information and advice from people such as Peter Wright and Bristow might as well include himself that they tried to create a block and paid dearly for it. The last time these two men met was in 1988 when Bristow and Betty were visiting their eldest son in Australia, and Peter lived in Australia at this point, and this was after Spycatcher was published. What Bristow says is that he cannot see why Spycatcher was so disturbing that it got banned. Okay, Hollis was a knight of the realm, so was Blunt, but that's not Peter Wright's fault, and even at the time, £2,000 a year, which was Peter Wright's pension, was not adequate. So Peter Wright really had a grudge. He, He got this pension deal which was ridiculously low in his eyes, and it must have been because he had to go to Australia to eke it out and and run a farm, and therefore he wrote the book as a way to pay for his retirement. So again, the British government, if they had simply paid Peter Wright his normal pension, he would never have written Spycatcher, and none of this would have come out about Hollis and Little. And Bristow makes the fairly obvious conclusion that I've also made, that McLean and Burgess and Philby were all allowed to escape because it was just too embarrassing for them to be tried in a public courtroom. And I'd like to finish the review with the final chapter, which is about Tommy Harris. And I knew of Tommy Harris's strange death in a car crash, but I'd never seen such a detailed account of it before. Now, admittedly, I haven't exactly specialised in Tommy Harris, but he was a key component of the double-cross system, which helped Operation Fortitude and others. And he died in 1964 in a car crash. What I assumed was that he was alone, but he wasn't. The day after the accident, Betty answered the telephone to a very distraught Hilda Harris. Betty, Tommy is dead. He killed himself in a car accident yesterday. Betty asked if he had been alone, and Hilda explained that she had been in the car with him and felt it was her fault. And the reason she thinks it was her fault is that Tommy was driving so fast and angrily that she kept asking him to slow down. And of course, the more she said slow down, the faster he drove. And eventually they went across a small humpback bridge. The car left the ground and hit a tree interestingly hilda was thrown out clear of the car and received only bruises whereas tommy was killed immediately but this really does remove any notion i had that he was murdered or something odd happened or he committed suicide there is no way if he was going to kill himself that he could have imagined betty uh, as he could have imagined that hilda would have escaped he would have assumed they would both die when the car hit the tree And the fact that it flew over a bridge, you know, it's very easy at high speed to lose control on a humpback bridge. It was a genuine accident. Anybody who says it was odd is clearly ridiculous. So Tommy Harris died in a genuine car accident and his wife was lucky to survive. Simple as that. All the stories, all the rumours, ridiculous. And then the last few passages are about Philby and the secret life. And eventually... And eventually everybody comes to the same conclusion in the end, at the end of their careers, it seems to me. Especially those that were active in the war. And of course, during the Second World War, the spying and the espionage had a genuine purpose. It saved lives, shortened the war, all of this is beyond doubt in my mind. But after the war, the value of it tails off. And you had all this silly stuff with Russia, everybody spying on everybody else, and... MI5 hiding stuff from MI6, and it's all very depressing, and it can be recognised in the way the government and the civil service behave today. It's more about personalities than facts and data and information, really. And it's, they all reach the same conclusion. John le Carre reached it sooner, thank goodness, for us, and left when he was still a comparatively young man. But Bristow served through to retirement, or maybe early retirement, but still, he served a long time And it took its toll and it made him disillusioned. He blamed MI5 and MI6 just as much as the KGB, it seems to me. And rightly so. These organisations, just like others in government, you could name a list of them, covered up and covered up and covered up the cover-ups for years and years so that nobody got blamed for anything and nobody was held to account and the victims lined up and the suspicions multiplied. And even people like Peter Wright, who were trying to clean this stuff up, got caught in the crossfire and screwed over. And this still goes on today, no question. And not only in the secret services. So be warned, if you do fancy a job in MI6 and you want to apply on their website, look at all these cautionary tales and think to yourself, is it worth it for this small amount of money that they're offering? Because if you get into the wrong case, the wrong project, your life could be turned upside down. So that's my review of the book A Game of Moles by Desmond Bristow and his son Bill and I do recommend it I think that the material in here the people he knew are so fascinating and so well covered everywhere else that this was some genuinely new perspectives for me and I think it's definitely worth a read grab a hold of a second hand paperback if you can but don't expect a riveting read of the kind you would get from a professional it's not in the league of a Ben McIntyre book for example Strongly recommended, full of fascinating facts about Tommy Harris and Kim Philby that I hadn't seen anywhere else. So, go too. And we'll see you next time. The next episode will be back to a normal Spies of London episode. No more walks for now, and no more book reviews for a few weeks. Thanks for listening. Please go to our website, spiesoflondon.com, and sign up for news, and read the articles there.